Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa, show 48. Everybody, welcome. Kieran, how are you doing this fine morning? Tony, how can I say it? Um, I, I feel as, as, as fresh as a daisy, as, as, as clear as a azure blue sky and, and revved up. They hit the second part of our Stephen Donaldson... Spectacular. Spectacular, spectacular. <laughs> In the words of the Moulin Rouge. Well, it's actually... There's no no blue clouds. It's pouring down rain. And this is actually a bit of a time step for us. We've recorded this a long, long time ago. And I've actually been probably back from Glastonbury now when you listen to this. So, But we'll get straight into Stephen Donaldson, part two. And what we're ha- what's going to be planned here is we're going to do a little bit more about Stephen Donaldson. And then we have a fantastic treat for you. We have Mr. Kieran O'Carroll has narrated one of Stephen Donaldson's short stories. There you go. Kieran, what was your experience like about that? I was filled with trepidation. <laughs> I thought it was quite good because all the pressure was on Kieran. And I just actually sat in the room and said, no, say that bit again. <laughs> Well, the, the bit you get to hear uh, as as listeners to Starship Sofa is the second take. Uh, I think the first one. Oh, that's right! I forgot about that. We did the first one. The first one got binned because it was um, rubbish. I think is the best way of doing it. There. I forgot all about that. We did um, two. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I put too many. I have a lot of comedy voices in trumpet noises, <laughs> and I had one of those. You know the noise, that, uh, the duck noise. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> That went on there, and he reckoned that Mr. Donaldson perhaps wouldn't be that impressed by it. <laughs> Didn't like that, did he? No. So anyway, well, that's on the on the back of this show. There, hope you enjoy it. So, Kieran, part two. Where do you want to begin with Steve Donaldson, part two? With hello, welcome to Starship Sofa. The email address is uh, starshipsofa at gmail and the website address is www.starshipsofa.com. Yes, send your emails in before we get on the show. It's really nice. We might not get them all read out. You know, we, we do get a few, but it's just lovely to, to to meet new people. You know what I mean? It's new people that keep emailing in, and it's it's amazing. Don't forget the forums as well. Please go over to the forums and join our forums. Say hello. We haven't mentioned this for a while, mind you. The Frap Map. Get yourselves on the Frap Map. There's a little link there on the website page. And that would be nice to say, say hello. And also keep looking out for, there's going to be loads of new changes, hopefully, hopefully, in the website. That's all going to be getting all upgraded and everything like that. And if you are 
if there's anyone out there who's actually keen to come in and write a review for the Starship Sofa website once that's up and running, please get in touch with us at that email address Kieran said before. Anyone who's read a science fiction book and you want to write a review of it, send it in. Send reviews in of anything. And don't forget, if you want to get a reply, do include a self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> that's our fake blue Peter, isn't it? <laughs> now, I mean... I, I, Reaching out. Fuck off. <laughs> Yo, just keep that little darling in there. Nah. Ever the professional. <laughs> Bugger off. I love that. Until he, as ever, you're ever so slightly polished. Yes, every word. This is edited, cut, and fine. This is Tony from the BBC. And this is Yay, Carol. <laughs> right, there we go. I am going to leave that. <laughs> I love it when you just get your little Tourette syndrome going. <laughs> this is really <laughs> our. I love you should build it up. Uh, this is our show on the short story works of Stephen Donaldson. Um, I think as we've kind of run through. The first part, you, you'll realise that opinions are divided about Stephen Donaldson's work. It's a, a like or loathe kind of uh, scenario for a lot of people. You either thrive on the literary works of Stephen, or you you find his his style uh, impenetrable in one in one way, shape, or form. But I think short stories are where anybody, any anybody who picks up uh, a volume of short stories or reads one of his short stories will find themselves pleasantly surprised. I think in the short story medium, he's able to transcend that barrier that sometimes exists between uh, certain groups of readers and his work because he really shines in his short story stuff. I think you'll find that going through his short stories, and especially we'll cover one of his compilations that I particularly enjoy at the end of the show, you'll find that he he draws upon a large variety of sources, almost. Yet when you question Stephen Donaldson about his particular approach, he he will claim that each story is more or less born inside his head, like Athene from the head of Zeus, and then this goes on to paper. But however, I do think there there, there are style, there are influences on Stephen Donaldson's work. Um, it has been said that he is, of course, influenced by the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and obviously, I mean, he's actually on, on a lot of book blurbs. They say that Stephen Donaldson uh, shall one day be recognised as, as being as great as J.R.R. Tolkien. However, in his short stories... There's certainly a wider range of influences evident. Uh, Mervyn Peake, Robert E. Howard, um, Roger Zelazny, funnily enough, that old standby of ours. Um, Donaldson himself says that he's uh, studied the narrative style of Joseph Conrad, Henry James and William Faulkner to develop his style. I mean, certainly I remember reading through uh, Reeve, uh, Reeve the Just and Other Tales. 
that uh, I felt that it was more, almost more indebted to to my earlier pulp reading mm-hmm. from the thirties. Have you, you know, when else. you're reading? Because I haven't actually. D- d- I've only listened to the the short story you re- you read out last week. 25 times or something <laughs> now did you see any influences there because you see any influences with you know like them like see if especially like Zelazny or with his short stories no because the short story that Stephen Donaldson gave us was a very different piece it was it was almost it was almost well it was it was if not a, mor- a morality play it was it was certainly uh, a more moral piece, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of read as a moral piece. I tell you what, um, just jumping jumping the subject here. What I noticed when we actually did the interview with Stephen Donaldson, I went in a couple of bookshops, and I always remember from like the kind of early eighties when he was you know hitting hitting his big kind of strides. His books were all over. Now, when you go into say, I, I guess like Main Street shops, you know, even like the likes of W. H. Smiths and. Waterstones and all that he's probably just got one book on the shelf now you know you know how kind of times change and I mean I guess he's still doing okay and you know, the UK market must be still oh, he was very, at, actually he was very well looked after mm-hmm. by the UK market he was very mm-hmm. popular over here but it's like you say there's just the one you know and there's like there's, there's, the shelves at the minute seem to be swamped with fantasy do you know what I mean and it's just like you know all the kind of Robin Hobbs. <laughs> I, I quite, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Robin Hobbs. Well, we've had this little thing before about it's live a, ships and... Far, is it the Farsia trilogy? Yeah, it is the first one, isn't it? After that. No, what, it was... Um, this has got nothing to do with Stephen Donaldson, but it was on that live ship trade that there's one image on one of them books where there's like a serpent round a, a, a boat. I always like that serpent for a tattoo. There you go. Got a Chinese dragon on now, but that's what. <laughs> I forgot about your tattoo. That was I think your, about getting another one, you know. Your fortieth birthday midlife crisis. Mm, the only person who gets to see it is the, the poor buggers you go off and lie naked on the beach with. <laughs> Thinking about getting another, or oh, actually enhancing that one. So I don't know. I say it's the Melanie, you know, I say it's a, I fancy getting Starship sofa, like words tattoos. <laughs> you told me fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Silly bastard. <laughs> well, Donaldson says, this, he's got a little um, quote on literature here. He says, My reading is probably 50% science fiction and fantasy and 50% mainstream. He says, He spends a certain amount of time revisiting books that I love. And that's something I just cannot, I've mentioned this before as well, I cannot go back to to reading them. But you there, fellow, you've read them Zelazny books just again. I don't know how many times you've read them and mm. that series? Uh, well, I've had. I think the the one that I've hit more often is the Lord of Light because it's just a real buzz for me. And yet there was someone on I think it was Snoz on the forums said he just I'm sure he struggled immensely with that. You know how different tastes. It's quite weird how. Yeah, I'd, 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 for me, I'd, it, the Lord of Light was a real put downer. I, I know it it gets a bit messy towards the end with Sam dying and coming back to life and ah, dying ah. and coming back to life. <laughs> Gets the girl, yeah, <laughs> and chocolates. <laughs> well, it's there's actually an, another thing on the forums as well. It's Fred, you know, our good mate Fred. He says he just couldn't get flowers from Algernon, and you were telling me about that. But 
Fantastic. Well, I mean, my advice to Fred, Fred uh, Slimejaw, is that you've got two versions because it was extended yes. into. Uh, well, if you read his, sorry, if you read his thing, he, he knows all that, and he says even when it got, he was listening to his on the iPod, and it's like seventy percent easier to listen to something on the iPod. He says the last, for some reason, it went off in the last ten minutes. It, of this end of the end of the whole book, and he couldn't be bothered to go back and find his place. He just had enough with it. Oh, he was doing a, a talking book. Mm-hmm. Well, I must have Daniel Keyes when he wrote that book for me. Um, he did something quite magical. There's a famous story about uh, uh, him talking to Isaac Asimov, and Isaac Asimov praising him about flowers for Algernon, and uh, and he was giving him a kind of a breakdown of it. And Daniel Keyes said. Isaac, if you could tell me how I did that story, I'd love you to do that because perhaps I'd better write another one like it. Well, it's it's actually one that's it's actually sitting on my iPod there now. I still haven't getting around to listen to it, but it took me. I think you're talking something like over fifteen days to download it because it was only on one source. <clears throat> torrent, you know what I mean? It was just one lad who put it up there, and obviously you'd knock his internet connection off. So I'd have to wait, and oh, I took forever. So looking forward to it, but whether I like it or not, you know uh, me, re- pulps, uh, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, everyone's happy at the end. I remember hitting you with I mean, ages ago stories that I thought were absolutely fantastic, and I think Flowers for Algernon was one of the ones that I went to you and said, "You've got to read this." This is years ago, mm-hmm. and I seem to remember. Told you to off. Yeah, or, or you gave it a whirl and you weren't keen. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure you've actually read it in text as well now. I don't know. It doesn't ring a bell, but mine just... I'm sure I haven't um, read it. Getting back to Donaldson there, he says, he says he spends a certain amount of time revisiting books and he says for some reason he has very little taste for American mainstream fiction. He says the John Barths and the John Updikes. People like that really leave him cold. On the other hand, he says... He's read and reread every book of Anthony Powell ever published, and certainly have all the Paul Scott works. Now, I haven't heard of any like Anthony Powell or Paul Scott. They're actually, it's worth pointing out that he says that Paul Scott, um, for him, is the greatest living British writer, even though he's been dead for about ten years. Well, we on Friday. Just get pull Paul Scott's bio up off Wiki and just see what see what he says there. Okay, Tony. One moment. Here it is. Paul Mark Scott, born 25th of March 1920, died the 1st of March 1978. He was a British novelist, playwright, and poet, best known for his monumental The Raj Quartet. His novel Staying On won the Booker Prize for 1977. Uh, Dan Simmons, contrarily, very much alive, and uh, for him, he says Dan, Ribbon, Dan Simmons is a phenomenon. It's funny I've seen him. There's been there's been quite a few people. <coughs> Coffee's cold, choking in the back of my throat. There, there's quite a few on the forums I've mentioned Dan Simmons. Read Dan Simmons, and I actually didn't think he was. Well, when I kind of I did um, Carrion Comfort, and that was more like a kind of dark horror thing, and I didn't know he did even science fiction until everyone's saying, "Oh God, I." So, I think that's on my to do list. Mm-hmm. I wish you had a bloody iPod, Kim, because I can. Give you so many, so many. Do you know what I mean? You can do f- your gobbled up glass house in less than a week. If everyone remembers, I asked Kieran, he's better start reading glass house. It's done in a week and it's done. So 
Imagine what you could get done. Ah, but you know, while like, these books are done in a week, when I walk home from work, and it's I, I'm walking home from work at about eleven, half past eleven, and living in a in a, a reasonably well lit city, I can walk all the way home with a book and read all the way home. One of these days, I'm going to get mugged. What I I didn't realise you're doing it on the night time. Are you reading on night time going home from work? While I'm walking. What time do you finish on the night time? About 11.30 at night. <laughs> so 11.30 at night, you're walking through Newcastle City Centre, With reading open a book. book. Uh-huh. You'll get slapped. <laughs> now, it's quite quiet at that particular point, and the way that I You'll walk... You'll get slapped by reading science fiction. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not as if I'm kind of heading off home on the pull, you know? <laughs> Actually, I remember years ago, I did... There was a, a really drunk girl at the bus stop when I was going home. The last bus was about half past 11. And uh, this girl, she had yellow teeth and, and huge knockers. And uh, she saw me sitting there and obviously thought this was her last pull scenario. <laughs> it was this. It was swing about this bus stop. It happened on a regular basis. I'd be sitting there minding my business. It was when I first started buying the old uh, second-hand books from the second-hand shops. So I used to be flying through these things. I just had this unending source of science fiction that I'd either read before or discovering for the first time. And this lad said, what you're reading like? And I said, oh, it's just some junky old sci-fi. Oh, sci-fi, I love sci-fi, me. I, I love Star Wars, it's me favourite. <laughs> and then proceeded to try and pull me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, as ever, just sitting there being the perfect gentleman, just trying to hold the conversation. <laughs> I just wish the bus was already wouldn't um, come. <laughs> uh, when we got on the bus, it was because it was a last night minibus. It was, um, we ended up sitting together there, but she stopped pestering me. I think she kind of got the impression she wasn't going to get anywhere. He also, Donaldson also says, one of his favourites is Sherry Tepper. Her books are impressive in several different ways. She, is, she tackles themes that particularly nobody else in the field has dared to tackle, and her ambitions have been growing. You see, he sells Sherry Tepper quite highly, mm-hmm. doesn't he? He doesn't think that anybody's abilities could grow as fast as her, her ambitions have done. But you see this grudging uh, admiration, not even a grudging admiration, a quite free admiration for the fact that this woman's pushing um, her, her own abilities so that uh, you can see her stretched when she writes a first book covering a certain area. When she gets to her second book and covers that area again, she's completely in the zone. And uh, it's interesting that he should find that, you know, so laudable. Because I think with Stephen Donaldson, he certainly talks about when he dropped into the gap, Books. I'm sure he mentioned this on the on the previous show. When he dropped into the Gap books, he, in some reviews, uh, has been quoted as saying that he wanted to broaden his style and he saw the Gap books as a challenge mm-hmm. to actually develop another facet of his writing ability. It's something I wasn't actually even aware of, you know, like the short stories, like you're saying, he's got a, a couple of collections out there, you know, short stories, and it's... It's always nice when... For Literally those, a couple. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice for Literally us... Literally two. It's nice for us when we... Because I, like, I didn't realise there was. I mean, I've, like you see, I've, last show I did a few of the gaps. But it's nice to kind of know the, the handy, you know, like a short story you can kind of consume and you can get the kind of essence of a writer anyways without tackling something like Thomas Covent. 
Oh, the short stories are fantastic for me because they really do show that he is he is a, a writer of 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 incredible ability. And I think this comes back down to Sherry uh, Sherry Tepper. He um, it boggles him that that she started writing when she was in her fifties, and uh, I think that's one thing perhaps that especially. We'll get to this in this particular show. Coming to his later selection of short stories, which was Reeve the Just, he he came at a, a man with a completely new set of experiences because he was fairly green when he started writing his Thomas Covenant books. Mm-hmm. Reeve the Just and other tales is a man who has been through any a whole slew of experiences. And I think what he likes about Sherry Tepper is there's a woman who came into the scene there with her life experience behind her. Now, C.J. Cheryl is uh, one of his favourites and has been one of his favourites for quite some long time. He he goes on to mention in an interview here that uh, he really feels that she's stuck in a rut and she doesn't know how to get herself out of it. Um, and he would say that he hasn't been enjoying her books as much as he has in the past. Now, I guess getting back to the, the meat of the matter, which is Stephen Donaldson's short stories there... Um, Obviously, they're out in collections. Uh, I was quite actually fascinated to find that Stephen Donaldson was, has been published in fantasy and science fiction. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the story that we read out at the end of the show came from fantasy and science fiction. Um, he makes a distinction in his short stories, though, that most of the short stories are things that came to him and then he actually wrote. However, he has actually stated that he's come unstuck a couple of times when he's tried to write something to order. And Stephen Donaldson doesn't really cope particularly well with that. Um, to my knowledge, Stephen Donaldson's done that twice. Once uh, when he was the guest of honour at, at the World Fantasy Convention. And the second one was when Fred Saberhagen uh, got in touch with him and, and said, look, I've got this idea about people writing, with it, writing stories within my berserker universe. Now, the berserkers being his... Um, automated battleships. Um, so he, he got in touch with uh, Stephen Donaldson and pushed and pushed and pushed. Stephen Donaldson kind of fought him and, and, and kind of stalled him. And then Fred Saberhagen sent him in, sent him a copy of a story that Larry Niven had obviously been badgered into writing as well. And he sat there, he read Larry Niven's book there, and he said, if I can't write a better story than this... That's quite. I don't um, deserve to live. That's quite good, though, because, like, see, Larry Niven's up there with the classics, and did Larry Niven just think, "Bollocks, I've got to do this. Send in something old that he's had for ages, or or he cobbled something old, or wrote, sat down and wrote something?" Because I, I reckon once you start writing, it's just, you know, once you're kind of good at it, I don't think you could kind of slip back into being crap. Do you know what I mean? So, it's just the way you, you kind of write. So you're also going to kind of write in that style. You're not going to go worse and if that story was that bad yes it's true you get the impression whether the whether Fred Saberhagen had actually badgered Larry Niven as well and do you think Fred Saberhagen had to Donaldson to say Jesus look at that or can you do something like that <laughs> yes <laughs> it must be handed in to me yes it was a bit of a carrot or a stick I'm not entirely certain there. though certainly the way it put there was um, I think when it came to sci-fi, at that particular point there, I don't think Stephen Donaldson would really feel that he was in the right ballpark to do that. 
I'll tell you what must be weird, you know, like you say, is the pressure was on, you know, you got paid for this to like, write a story. It's a, I wonder what it's like for other people, because that kind of never came into my kind of realm when I was like kind of scribbling away. Getting paid first, write a story on the theme of blah de blah de blah. Do you know what I mean? There must be only kind of <clears throat> the professionals who get into that kind of situation, you know, amateurs kind of just bash you with their own memories, own kind of ideas. Well, I don't know, it depends on the kind of writer you are. I mean, I guess the way I pull that one there is there are certain writers, and Philip Jose Fama is the prime exponent of that. There's a guy who loves writing with other people's ideas, mm-hmm. loves writing with the mantle of, a, of, a, of another pseudonym on his shoulders, there, loves finding himself outside of his box. Uh, Stephen's done uh, short stories. He had one that was um, included in an anthology about Tolkien. Um, it seems there's a trickle of short stories that gets us to read the, read the Just Another Tales, and, and that's particularly one of them. Um, I was kind of curious as to how or what motivated Stephen Donaldson to write short stories. And what I seem to find in my research or my reading around the subject there, Tony, was that Stephen Donaldson, um, he sees short stories um, and short story collections in particular having a, a particular, and I quote here, aesthetic credibility. I guess for him, it's the purest form of short, purest form of storytelling. Well, if, when, if you can remember, Kim, when we asked Stephen Stephen Donaldson for a short story, you know, I kind of laid down the, the kind of we needed a certain kind of length just for like time constraints. He says he had one, but it, it was really it would be quite actually difficult to to narrate, and it'd be nice to know actually what that story was because he says you know it was more like a kind of him. I guess kind of practicing with words and kind of mixing words up so it wouldn't probably read as a straight narrative. So we got the next next best one. <laughs> hmm. Oh yes, I followed that there. For him, people always said that he was too wordy, and and in the short stories, he got a chance to actually show that he could write in other styles, and instead of just the kind of oblique and mm-hmm. rococo style of the Covenant books there. And it also, I think in the later collection there, gave you an opportunity to see how much he'd actually uh, changed as a writer. Both short story collections, are they good ways to get into Donaldson if you haven't, been, if you haven't read the Thomas Covenant ones? It's just now, because you know, we're under the third lot of them. There's a hell of a lot of work there. Is these short stories a good way to get yourself into it? Yes. You also get to see little snapshots of, of his own particular life in, in a way as well. There's a short story, Unworthy of the Angel. Now, this is supposed to be Stephen Donaldson's personal favourite. This is from uh, Daughter of Rothmans. And he was asked a question in another interview that I pulled offline, um, asked a question that they thought that it was very non-standard religious... It had a very non-standard standard religious theme running through it. And uh, it's funny enough, in this particular story, Stephen Donaldson says, well, yes, you know, yes, it is, because of my own background... And this is going to be a direct quote. Stephen Donaldson says, I grew up on the mission fields in India. My parents were Presbyterian fundamentalists, especially my mother. Uh, He says, there is no way in the world I could have the intellectual or imaginative freedom to be a writer at all and accept the presuppositions of my upbringing. So what I've done is put a little interpretation on this. So instead of being a missionary for Christ, I am a missionary for stories. I believe in storytelling in the same way that my parents believed in God. 
and it's my version of God, but it's a very personal thing, and I certainly don't want to push it on people. I don't usually use the terminology because people don't understand what I'm referring to. They may hear the words, they may hear the concepts uh, that they are used to, but not the ones I personally subscribe to. And that's actually quite interesting there, because uh, he has been fairly devoted literary concerns. I mean, in the interview, when we had a, actually had a chat to him, do you know, I asked him about Donovan. Didn't have a clue. No, it was quite odd that. So he is a man who, who's immersed himself in, in his field, and you do feel that that is... Um, well, it's also what he said as well about the computer. You know, he's like PC, he's not Mac, because it's word-based and it's not icon-based kind yeah. of thing. So. Again, because it works for him. It, it does. It seems to be his Well, that's the same, reference. again, if you remember back to the Charles Stross show. He's, if you look on his website, Charles Stross, it's all, it's like a word-based website. It's not very pretty, but it's all it's all there with words. I guess for the the sci-fi reader, it's worth actually picking up a copy of Daughter of Regals because there's a few sci-fi stories actually in there as well. It's not just pure fantasy. And that particular set of stories, I guess, um, were pre-The Gap. So you could, you could see the gradual turn of his eyes towards the science fiction firmament. Now, I must admit, I haven't read um, Daughter of Regals there, uh, but Reeve the Just uh, and Other Tales is the short story collection that I read there, and I really, really enjoyed that. Um, it was 14 years after he'd written his first collection of short stories that he published it. Uh, Daughter of Regals and Other Tales was written uh, over the years 1977 to 1983. Um, 14 years later, so let's just do the edition there, uh, 97 that uh, Reeve the Just came out there he said for himself it was a personal experience in seeing how much as a writer and how much uh, water under the bridge in his own particular life had passed in between those particular tales so I think that there's a beautiful little forward to this particular book and, I, and I'll, I'll leave it at that there and this is the Reeve the Just and other tales where he actually describes each one of the stories um, and then says, this is what was going on in my life, which is something rare. You don't often get that. I've never come across that before where a writer has actually done that and said, all right, then this is what was happening to me at the particular time mm-hmm. uh, in such a condensed form there. So the, the, there's a story in here called The Woman Who Loved Pigs, which is, is actually quite good. It is actually quite good. Again, you can see this one quite easily. It's all about uh, a wizard who uses the woman to his own particular ends. He does so many things for her but against her will. And this story, he said, helped him regain his balance when he he began to founder in the Gap novels. Right. So I did... Is the story that... And it it does actually ring a little bit like the Gap stories, you know, this kind of people, people, people stuff. And I remember reading it at the time, The Woman Who Loves Pigs, before I'd gone anywhere near the Gap novels there, and finding its particular approach a a bit odd, the way they dealt with the characters... Mm-hmm. I mean, certain aspects of it were really, really good, but the, the obviously the central relationship of it between this particular wizard and the woman who loves pigs, um, I, I, I found it a little bit odd, but nowhere near as, as painful as I as I found some of the kind of situations that uh, he put Morn Highland and Nick Sacorso through. through. 
Did, is the short story what you're about to listen, what everyone's about to listen to, is that in one of these collections? Absolutely not. It was printed in um, Fantasy and Science. And that's the only place it's been apart from the Starship sofa? Ah, uh, in... Uh, you never, Stephen never said otherwise. I love that first name stuff. Stephen, yes. Stephen. Well, you know what I mean. Uh, caps off Jim Donaldson, sir. So, I mean, here we go. Stephen Donaldson's um, short stories, well worth getting into. Stephen's stories, an absolute eye-opener for me. I mean, I really found myself bowled over by Read the Just and Other Tales. Really, really fantastic. Well, you know what it is, though, Kieran? I'm just jumping in. I'm glad we actually did the short stories, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of weirded it through there, because everyone, you know, you kind of... It's just a different sight of Stephen Donaldson. You know, you've got your tons of, like... You know, the kind of half internet's kept up, propped up by debate on Stephen Donaldson, you know, like the Covenant and all the kind of hidden meanings and hidden stuff. And there's nothing really out there about short stories and that. So hopefully, you know, people that like Stephen Donaldson with this show and with the story about it here, you get a kind of a second glimpse at the guy, you know, not just known for Thomas Coven, you know, Leprosy, The Ring and all that. But anyway, if you like Stephen Donaldson, here's a little short story we have been kindly given by this great writer. It's We really appreciate him, you know, doing that for us. It's nice. It was an absolute honour. Oh, it really was an absolute honour. In fact, the dealings with Stephen Donaldson, I mean, I, I think he's a top bloke. Gentleman through and through. He put up with, he put up with us. <laughs> Which is something, something that bloody my wife struggles with and your girlfriend struggles with, so... Putting up with us. <laughs> yes. So next week will be show 49, and for show 49, who are we doing next week? We are doing no one. Kieran, who are we doing? Well, it's it's a little bit of a pet project um, that Tony and I have, have talked about on and off. I mean, we're talking about, what, three, four months we've been talking about this one. Um, it's a little bit of a show about the science fiction fan. Ever since I've been reading on the background of science fiction, I've been getting interested in hearing... I mean, Isaac Asimov first met uh, Harlan Ellison, his great friend, at a convention where he was introduced to Harlan Ellison as a fan. Um, a lot of guys who have since gone on to become luminaries in the field of science fiction, Damon Knight, for instance, there, came in as fans, guys mm-hmm. who just enthralled with the with the genre, wanted to get themselves involved. So next week's show is all about the, the sci-fi fandom. There we go. Hope you'll join us, everyone. Just like to say, good night from me. And... Uh, <laughs> Good night from him. Mythological Beast Norman was a perfectly safe, perfectly sane man. He lived with his wife and son, who were both perfectly safe, perfectly sane, in a world that was perfectly sane, perfectly safe. It had been that way all his life. So when he woke up that morning, he felt as perfect as always. He had no inkling at all of all the things that had already started to happen to him. As usual, he woke up when he heard the signal from the biometer, cybernetically attached to his wrist. And, as usual, the first thing he did was to press the stud, which activated the biometer's LED readout. The display gleamed greenly for a moment on the small screen. As usual, it said, You are okay. There was nothing to be afraid of. As usual, he had absolutely no idea what he would have done if it had said anything else. His wife Sally was already up. Her signal came before his so that he would have time to use the bathroom and get the breakfast started. 
That way there would be no unpleasant hurrying. He rolled out of bed promptly and went to take his turn in the bathroom so that he would not be late for work and his son, Enwell, would not be late for school. Everything in the bathroom was the same as usual. Even though Sally had just used it, the vacuum sink was spotless and the toilet was as clean as new. He could not even detect his wife's warmth on the seat. Everything was perfectly safe, perfectly sane. His reflection in the mirror was the only thing that had changed. The tight lump in the center of his forehead made no sense to him. He had never seen it before. Automatically, he checked his biometer. But again, it said, you are okay. That seemed true enough. He did not feel ill, and he was almost the only person he knew who knew what ill meant. The lump did not hurt in any way, but still felt vaguely uneasy. He trusted the biometer. It should have been able to tell him what was happening. Carefully, he explored the lump. It was as hard as bone. In fact, it seemed to be part of his skull. It looked familiar, and he scanned back in his memory through some of the books he had read until he found what he wanted. His lump looked like the base of a horn, or perhaps the nub of a new antler. He had seen such things in books. That made even less sense. He wore an unusual frown as he finished in the bathroom, and then went to the kitchen for breakfast. Sally was just putting his food on the table. The same juice, cereal, soy ham that she always served him. A perfectly safe meal that would give him energy for the morning without letting him gain weight or become ill. He sat down to eat it as he always did. But when Sally sat down opposite him, he looked at her and said, What's this thing on my forehead? His wife had a round bland face and its lines had slowly become blurred over the years. She looked at his lump vaguely, but there was no recognition in her eyes. Are you okay? she said. He touched the stump of his biometer and showed her that he was okay. Automatically, she checked her own biometer and got the same answer. Then she looked at him again. This time she too frowned. It shouldn't be there, she said. Enwell came into the kitchen and Sally went to get his breakfast. Enwell was a growing boy. He watched the food come as if he were hungry and then he began to eat quickly. He was eating too quickly. But Norman did not need to say anything. Enwell's biometer gave a low hum and displayed in kind yellow letters, Eat more slowly. Enwell obeyed with a shrug. Norman smiled at his son's obedience, then frowned again. He trusted his biometer. It should be able to explain the lump on his forehead. Using the proper code, he tapped on the face of the display, I need a doctor. A doctor would know what was happening to him. His biometer replied, You are okay. This did not surprise him. It was standard procedure. The biometer was only doing its job by reassuring him. He tapped again. I need a doctor. This time the green letter said promptly, Excused from work. Go to medical building, room 218. Enwell's biometer signaled that it was time for him to go to school. Got to go, he mumbled as he left the table. If he saw the lump on his father's forehead, he did not think enough about it to say anything. Soon he left the house. As usual, he was on time. Norman rubbed his lump. The hard bony nub made him feel uneasy again. He resisted an urge to recheck his biometer. When he had finished his breakfast, he said goodbye to Sally, as he always did when he was going to work. Then he went out to the garage and got into his mobile. After he had strapped himself in, he punched the address of the medical building into the console. He knew where the medical building was, not because he had ever been there before. 
In fact, no one he knew had ever been there, but because it was within sight of the National Library where he worked. Once the address was locked in, his mobile left the garage smoothly on its balloon tires, a perfectly safe design, and slid easily into the perfectly sane flow of the traffic. All the houses on this street were identical for a long way in either direction, and as usual, Norman paid no attention to them. He did not need to watch the traffic, since his mobile took care of things like that. His seat was perfectly comfortable. He just relaxed in his safety straps and tried not to feel concerned about his lump until his mobile deposited him on the curb outside the medical building. This building was much taller and longer than the National Library, but apart from that, the two looked very much alike. Both were empty except for the people who worked there, and the people worked there because they needed jobs, not because there was any work that needed to be done, and both were similarly laid out inside. Norman had no trouble finding his way. Room 218 was in the Iotrogenics wing. In the outer office was a desk with a computer terminal very much like the one Norman used at the library. And at the desk sat a young woman with yellow hair and confused eyes. When Norman entered her office, she stared at him as if he was sick. Her stare made him touch his lump and frown. But she was not staring at his forehead. After a moment, she said, It's been so long, I've forgotten what to do. Maybe I should tell you my name, he said. That sounds right, she said, sounding relieved. Yes, I think that's right. Tell me a name. He told her. She looked around the terminal, then pressed a button to engage some kind of program. Now what, he said. I don't know, she said. She did not seem to like being so confused. Norman did not know either. But almost at once, the door to the inner office opened. The woman shrugged, so Norman just walked through the doorway. The inner office had been designed to be cosy, but something had gone wrong with its atmospherics, and now it was deep in dust. When Norman sat down in the only chair, he raised the dust, which made him cough. "'I'm Dr. Brett,' a voice said. "'You seem to have a cough.' The voice came from a console that faced the chair. Apparently, Dr. Brett was a computer." who looked just like the director of the National Library. Norman relaxed automatically. He naturally trusted a computer like that. No, he said, it's the dust. Ah, the dust, the computer said. I'll make a note to have it removed. His voice sounded wise and old and very rusty. After a moment, he went on. There must be something wrong with my scanners. You look healthy to me. Norman said, my biometer says I'm okay. Well, then my scanners must be right. You're in perfect health. Why did you come? I have a lump on my forehead. A lump? Dr. Brett hummed. It looks healthy to me. Are you sure it isn't natural? Yes. For an instant, Norman felt unnaturally irritated. He touched the lump with his fingers. It was as hard as bone. No, harder, as hard as steel. It was as hard as tongue diamonds. He began to wonder why he had bothered to come here. Of course, of course the doctor said. I've checked your records. You weren't born with it. What do you think it is? The question surprised Norman. How should I know? I thought you were going to tell me. Of course, said the computer. You can trust me. I'll tell you everything that's good for you. That's what I'm here for. You know that. The director of the National Library speaks very highly of you. It's in your records. The machine's voice made Norman's irritation evaporate. He trusted his biometer. He trusted Dr. Brett. 
he settled himself in the chair to hear what the lump was. But even that amount of movement raised the dust. He sneezed twice. Dr. Brett said, "'You seem to have a cold.' "'No,' Norman said. "'It's the dust.' "'Ah, the dust,' Dr. Brett said. "'Thank you for coming.' "'Thank you for...' Norman was surprised. All at once he felt very uneasy. He felt that he had to be careful. "'Aren't you going to tell me what it is?' "'There's nothing to worry about,' the doctor said. "'You're perfectly healthy. It'll go away in a couple of days. Thank you for coming.' The door was open. Norman stared at the computer. The director did not act like this. He was confused, but he did not ask any more questions. Instead, he was careful. He said, "'Thank you, doctor,' and walked out the office. The door closed behind him. The woman was still sitting at the outer desk. When she saw Norman, she beckoned to him. "'Maybe you can help me,' she said. "'Yes,' he said. "'I remember what I'm supposed to do now,' she said. "'After you see the doctor, I'm supposed to get his instructions.' She tapped the console. "'And make sure you understand them. "'But nobody's ever come here before. "'And when I got this job, I didn't tell him.' She looked away from Norman. "'That I didn't know how to read.' Norman knew what she meant. "'Of course.' She could read her biometer. Everybody could do that. But except for that, reading was not taught anymore. Enrol certainly was not learning how to read in school. Reading was not needed anymore. Except for the people at the National Library, Norman was the only person he knew who could actually read. That was why nobody ever came to use the library. But now he was being careful. He smiled to reassure the woman and walked round the desk to look at her console. She tapped the display to activate the readout. At once, vivid red letters spread across the screen. They said, Secret, confidential, private, personal, secret, under no circumstances, repeat, under no circumstances, show this diagnosis to patient or reveal its contents. Then there were a series of numbers that Norman did not understand. Then the words said, Absolute, Priority, transmit at once to General Hospital. Emergency Division, repeat, Emergency Division, absolute priority. Transmit, the woman said. That means I'm supposed to send this to the hospital. Her hand moved towards the buttons that would send the message. Norman caught her wrist. No, he said. That isn't what it means. It means something else. The woman said, Oh, the bright lead letters said, Diagnosis. Patient suffering from massive genetic breakdown of indeterminate origin. Complete, replete, complete structural transition in progress. Transmutation irreversible. Prognosis. Patient will become dangerous himself and will cause fear in others. Repeat, will cause fear. Treatment. Study recommended, but destruction imperative. Repeat, imperative. Repeat imperative effect soonest. What did it say? The woman said. For a moment, Norman did not answer. His lump was as hard as a magnesite nail driven into his skull. Then he said, It said I should get some rest. It said I've been working too hard. It said I should go to hospital if I don't feel better tomorrow. Before the woman could stop him, he pressed the buttons that erased the terminal's memory. The terminal was just like the one he used in the National Library and he knew what to do. After erasing, 
he programmed the terminal to cancel everything that had happened today. Then he fed in a cancel program to wipe out everything in the terminal. He did not know what good that would do, but he did it anyway. He expected the woman to try and stop him, but she did not. She had no idea what he was doing. He was sweating and his pulse was too fast. He was so uneasy that his stomach hurt. That had never happened to him before. He left the office without saying anything to the woman. His knees were trembling. As he walked down the corridor of the iatrogenics wing, his biometer was saying in blue reassuring letters, You'll be okay. You will be okay. Apparently his erasures were successful. In the next few days, nothing happened to him as a result of Dr. Brett's report. By the time he returned home from the medical building, his readout had regained its placid green, You are okay. He did this deliberately. He did not feel okay. He felt uneasy. But he did not want his biometer to send him to the general hospital. So while his mobile drove him home, he made an effort to seem okay. The touch of his lump gave him a strange reassurance, and after a while his pulse, blood pressure, respiration, and reflexes had become as steady as usual. And at home everything seemed perfectly sane, perfectly safe. He woke up every morning at the signal of his biometer, went to work at the signal of his biometer, ate lunch at the signal of his biometer. This was reassuring. It reassured him that his biometer took such good care of him. Without it, he might have worked all day without lunch, reading, sorting the mountain of discarded books in the storeroom, feeding them into the reference computer. At times he felt like that. His uneasiness went away. He went home again at the end of the day at the signal of his biometer. But at home his uneasiness returned. Something was happening inside him. Every morning he saw in the mirror that his lump was growing. It was clearly a horn now, a pointed shaft as white as bone. It was full of strength. When it was more than four inches long, he tested it on the mirror. The mirror was made of glass steel so it would not shatter and hurt anybody but he scratched it easily with the tip of his horn. Scratching it took no effort at all. And that was not the only change. The soles of his feet were growing harder, and his feet seemed to be getting shorter. They were starting to look like hooves. Tufts of pure white hair as clean as the sky were sprouting from the backs of his calves and the back of his neck. Something that might have been a tail grew out of the small of his back. But these things were not what made him uneasy. He was not uneasy because he was thinking that someone from the hospital might come to destroy him. He was not thinking that at all. He was being careful. He did not let him think anything that might make his biometer call for help. No, he was uneasy because he could not understand what Sally and Enwell were doing about what was happening to him. They were not doing anything. They were ignoring the changes in him, as if he looked just the same as always. To them, everything was perfectly sane perfectly safe. First this made him feel uneasy. Then it made him feel angry. Something important was happening to him, and they did not even see it. Finally at breakfast one morning, he became too irritated to be careful. Enwell's biometer signaled that it was time for him to go to school. He mumbled, got to go, and left the table. Soon he had left the house. Norman watched his son go. Then he said to Sally, who taught him to do that? She did not look up from her soy ham. Do what? she said. Go to school. 
he said. Obey his biometer. We never taught him to do that. Sally's mouth was full. She waited until she swallowed. Then she said, Everybody does it. The way she said it made his muscles tighten. A line of sweat ran down his back. For an instant he wanted to hit the table with his hand, hit it with the hard, flat place on the palm of his hand. He felt sure he could break the table. Then his biometer signaled to him. Automatically he left the table. He knew what to do. He always knew what to do when his biometer signaled. He went out to the garage and got into his mobile. He strapped himself into the seat. He did not notice what he was doing until he saw his hands had punched in the address of the general hospital. At once he cancelled the address, unstrapped himself and got out of the mobile. His heart was beating too fast. His biometer was saying without being asked, Go to the hospital. You will be okay. The letters were yellow. His hands trembled, but he tapped into the display. I am okay. Then he went back into the house. Sally was cleaning the kitchen, as she always did after breakfast. She did not look at him. Sally, he said, I want to talk to you. Something's happening to me. It's time to clean the kitchen, she said. I heard the signal. Clean the kitchen later, he said. I want to talk to you. Something's happening to me. I heard the signal, she said. It's time to clean the kitchen now. Look at me, he said. She did not look at him. Her hands were busy wiping scraps of soy ham into the vacuum sink, where they were sucked away. Look at me, he said. He took hold of her shoulders with his hands and made her face him. It was easy, he was strong. Look at my forehead. She did not look at him. Her face was screwed into tight knots and ridges. It turned red, then she began to cry. She wailed and wailed, and her legs did not hold her up. When he let her go, she sank to the floor and folded up into a ball and wailed. Her biometer said to her in blue, You will be okay. You will be okay. But she did not see it. She cried as if she were terrified. Norman felt sick in his stomach, but his carefulness had come back. He left his wife and went back to the garage. He got into his mobile and punched in an address only ten houses down the road. His mobile left the garage smoothly and eased itself into the perfectly sane flow of the traffic. When it parked at the address he had given it, he did not get out. He sat in his seat and watched his house. Before long, an ambulance rolled up to it. Men in white coats went in. They came out carrying Sally on a stretcher. They loaded her carefully into the ambulance and drove away. Because he did not know what else to do, he punched the address of the National Library into the console of his mobile and went to work. The careful part of him knew that he did not have much time. He knew, everybody knew, that his biometer was his friend. But now he also knew that it would not be long before his biometer betrayed him. The rebellion in his genes was becoming too strong. It would not stay secret much longer, and he did not know what was happening to him. He wanted to use the time to find out if he could. The library was the best place for him to go, but when he reached his desk with its computer console, like the one in Dr. Brett's outer office, he did not know what to do. He had never done any research before. He did not know anyone who had ever done any research. His job was to sort books, to feed them into the reference computer. He did not even know what he was looking for. Then he had an idea. He keyed his terminal into the reference computer and programmed it for auto-scan. 
Then he tapped in his question using the personal information code which was supposed to keep his question and answer from tying up the general circuits of the library and bothering the director. He asked, I have hooves, a tail, white hair, and a horn in the middle of my forehead. What am I? After a short pause, the display ran numbers which told Norman his answer was coming from the 1976 Encyclopedia Americana. That encyclopedia was a century out of date, but it was the most recent one in the library. Apparently people had not bothered to make encyclopedias for a long time. Then the display said, Answer Unicorn Data follows. His uneasiness suddenly became sharper. There was a sour taste in his mouth as he scanned the readout. The unicorn is a mythological beast, usually depicted as a large horse with a single horn on its forehead. Sweat ran into his eyes. He missed a few lines while he blinked to clear his sight. It represented chastity, purity, Though it would fight savagely when cornered, it could be tamed by a virgin's touch. In some interpretations, the unicorn is associated with the Virgin Mary. In others, it represents Christ the Redeemer. Then, to his surprise, the display showed him a picture of a unicorn. It was prancing high on its strong, clean legs. Its coat was as pure as the stars, and its eyes shone. Its mane flew like the wind. Its long white horn was as strong as the sun. At the sight, all his uneasiness turned into joy. The unicorn was beautiful. It was beautiful. He was going to be beautiful. For a long time, he made the display hold that picture, and he stared at it and stared at it. But after his joy receded a little, and the display went blank, he began to think. He felt that he was thinking for the first time in his life. His thoughts were clear and necessary and quick. He understood that he was in danger. He was in danger from his biometer. It was a hazard to him, a meta-sensor that monitored his body for signs of illness. But it was linked to the huge computers out of the general hospital. And when his metabolism passed beyond the parameters of safety, his biometer would summon the men in white coats. For the first time in his life, he felt curious about this. He felt that he needed to know more about it. Without hesitation, he tapped his question into the reference computer. Using his personal information code, he asked, Origin and function of biometer. The display ran the numbers promptly and began a readout. Worldwide violence, crime, war, insanity of 20th century showed humans capable of self-extermination. Operative cause was fear. Repeat, fear Research demonstrated humans without fear, non-violent sane. Police education, peace. Treaties inadequate to control fear of individual humans, but sane individual humans not prone to violence. War treaties, police weapons are necessary if individual is not afraid. Treatment. Monitor physiological signs of emotion, stress, illness. Conditioned responses, inbred to control behavior, fear, cross-reference, Pavlov behavior, modification, subconscious, hypnotism. Success of biometer program demonstrates fear does not exist where control order. Abruptly, the green letters flashed off the display and the terminal began to read out a line of red. 
Data, cancel, repeat, cancel. Material classification, restricted, not available without approval. Director, National Library file. Approval code before reactivating reference program. Norman frowned around his horn. He was not sure what had happened. Perhaps he had accidentally stumbled upon information that was always restricted and had automatically triggered the reference computer's cancellation program. Or perhaps the director had now just succeeded in breaking his personal information code and found out what he was doing. If the interruption had been automatic, he was still safe. But if the director had been monitoring him personally, he did not have much time. He needed to know. He left his desk and went to the director's office. The director looked very much like Dr. Brett. Norman believed that he could break the director with one kick of his hard foot. He knew what to do. He said, Director? Yes, Norman, the director said. His voice was warm and wise like Dr. Brett's. Norman did not trust him. Are you okay? Do you want to go home? I'm okay, Norman said. I want to take some books out. Take out some books, the director said. What do you mean? I want to withdraw some books. I want to take them home with me. Very well, the director said. Take them with you. Take the rest of the day off. You need some rest. Thank you, Norman said. He was being careful. Now he had what he wanted. He knew the director had been watching him. Knew that the director had deliberately broken his personal information code. He knew that the director had transmitted his information to the general hospital and had been told that he, Norman, was dangerous. No one was allowed to take books out of the National Library. It was forbidden to withdraw books. Always. Even the director could not override that rule, unless he had been given some emergency programming. Norman was no longer safe, but he did not hurry. He did not want the general hospital to think that he was afraid. The men in white coats would chase him more quickly if they thought he was afraid of them. He walked calmly as if he was perfectly safe, perfectly sane, to the stacks where the books were kept after they had been sorted and fed into the reference computer. He did not try to be thorough or complete. His time was short. He took only the books that he could carry, only the books that he was sure he wanted. He took the mask, the unicorn, and the messiah, the index to fairy tales, myths, and legends, barbarous knowledge, the Larousse Encyclopedia of Mythology, the Masks of God, and the Book of Imaginary Beings. He would need all these books when his transformation was complete. They would tell him what to do. He did not try to find any others. He left the National Library, hugging the books to his broad chest-like treasure. The careful part of him expected to have trouble with his mobile, but he did not. It took him home exactly as it always did. When he entered his house, he found that Sally had not been brought back. Emil had not come home. He did not think he would ever see them again. He was alone. He took off his clothes because he knew that unicorns did not wear clothes. Then he sat down in the living room and started to read his books. They did not make any sense to him. He knew most of the words, but he could not seem to understand what they were saying. At first he was disappointed in himself. He was afraid that he might not make a very good unicorn. But then he realized the truth. The books did not make sense to him because he was not ready for them. His transformation was not complete yet. When it was, he would be able to understand his books. He bobbed his horn joyfully. Then, because he was careful, he spent the rest of the day memorizing as much as he could of the first book, 
the book of imaginary beings. He wanted to protect himself in case his books were lost or damaged. He was still memorizing after dark, and he was not tired. His horn filled him with strength, but then he began to hear a humming noise in the air. It was soft and soothing, and he could not tell how long it had been going on. It was coming from his biometer. It found a place deep inside of him that obeyed. He lay down on the couch and went to sleep. But it was not the kind of sleep he was used to. It was not calm and safe. Something in him resisted it, resisted the reassuring hum. His dreams were wild, his emotions were strong, and one of them was uneasiness. His uneasiness was so strong that it must have been fear. It made him open his eyes. All the lights were on in the living room. There were four men in white coats around him. Each one of them carried a hypo gun. All the hypo guns were pointed at him. Don't be afraid, one of the men said. We won't hurt you. You're going to be all right. Everything is going to be okay. Norman did not believe him. He saw that the men were gripping the hypo guns tightly. He saw that the men were afraid of him. He flipped off the couch and jumped. His legs were immensely strong. His jump carried him over the heads of the men. As he passed, he kicked one of the men. Blood appeared on the man's forehead and splattered his coat, and he fell down and did not move. The nearest man fired his hypo gun, but Norman blocked the penetrating spray with the hard, flat heel of his palm. His fingers curled into a hoof, and he hit the man in the chest. The man fell down. The other two men were trying to run away. They were afraid of him. As they were running towards the door, Norman jumped after them and poked the nearest one with his horn. The man seemed to fly away from the horn. He crashed into the other man, and they both crashed against the door and fell down and did not move again. One of them had blood all over his back. Norman's biometer was blaring red. You are ill. You are ill. The man Norman had punched was still alive, gasping for breath. His face was white with death, but he was able to tap a message into his biometer. Norman could read his fingers. He was saying, Seal the house. Keep him trapped. Bring nerve gas. Norman went to the man. Why, he said. Why are you trying to kill me? The man looked at Norman. He was too close to dying to be afraid anymore. You're dangerous, he said. He was panting, and blood came out of his mouth. You're deadly. Why, Norman said. What's happening to me? Transmutation, the man said. Atavism, psychic throwback, you're becoming something that never existed. Never existed, Norman said. You must have been buried, the man said, in the subconscious. All this time, you never existed. People made you up. A long time ago, they believed in you because they needed to, because they were afraid. More blood came out of his mouth. How could it happen, he said. His voice was very weak. We put fear to sleep. There is no more fear, no more violence. How could it happen? Then he stopped breathing, but his eyes stayed open, staring at the things he did not understand. Norman felt a deep sorrow. He did not like killing. A unicorn was not a killing beast, but he had no choice. He had been cornered. His biometer was shouting, You are ill. He did not intend to be cornered again. He raised his wrist and touched his biometer with the tip of his horn. Pieces of metal were torn away, and bright blood ran down his arm. After that he did not delay. He took a slipcover from the couch and used it as a sack to carry his books. 
Then he went to the door and tried to leave his house. The door did not open. It was locked with heavy steel bolts that he had never seen before. They must have been built into the house. Apparently the men in white coats or the medicomputers were prepared for everything. They were not prepared for a unicorn. He attacked the door with his horn. His horn was as hard as steel, as hard as magnesite. It was as hard as tongue diamonds. The door burst open, and he went out into the night. Then he saw more ambulances coming down the road. Ambulances were converging on his house from both directions. He did not know where to run, so he galloped across the street and burst in the door of the house opposite him. The house belonged to his friend, Barto. He went to his friend for help. But when Barto and his wife, and two daughters, saw Norman, their faces filled with fear, the daughters began to wail like sirens. Barto and his wife fell to the floor and folded up into balls. Norman broke down the back door and ran out to the service lane between the rows of houses. He travelled the lane for miles. After the sorrow at his friend's fear came a great joy at his strength and swiftness. He was stronger than the men in white coats, faster than the ambulances, and he had nothing else to be wary of. The medicomputers could not chase him themselves. With his biometer gun, they could not even tell where he was, and they had no weapons with which to fight him except men in white coats and ambulances. He was free and strong and exhilarated for the first time in his life. When daylight came, he climbed onto the roofs of the houses. He felt safe there, and when he was ready to rest, he slept there alone facing the sky. He spent days like that, traveling the city, reading his books, and committing them to memory, waiting for his transformation to be complete. When he needed food, he raided grocery stores to get it, though the terror of the people he met filled him with sorrow. Gradually his food need changed, so he did not need to go to grocery stores anymore. He pranced in the parks at night, and cropped the grass and the flowers and ran nickering among the trees. And his transformation continued. His mane and tail grew thick and exuberant, his face lengthened, and his teeth became stronger. His feet became hooves, and the horny part of his hands grew. White hair the color of moonlight spread across his body and limbs, formed flaring tufts at the back of his ankles and wrists. His horn grew long and clean and perfectly pointed. His joints changed also, and began to flex in new ways. For a time this gave him some pain, but it soon became natural to him. He was turning into a unicorn. He was becoming beautiful. At times there did not seem to be enough room in his heart for the joy the change gave him. Yet he did not leave the city. He did not leave the people who were afraid of him. Though their fear gave him pangs of loneliness he had never felt before. He was waiting for something. There was something in him that was not complete. At first he believed that he was simply waiting for the end of his transformation. But... Gradually he came to understand that his waiting was a kind of search. He was alone, and unicorns were not meant to be alone. Not like this. He was searching the city to see if he could find other people like him, people who were changing. At last, one night, he came inside of the huge high structure of the General Hospital. He had been brought there by his search. If there were other people like him, they might have been captured by the men in the white coats, they might be prisoners in the emergency division of the hospital. They might be lying helpless while the medicomputers studied them, plotting their destruction. His nostrils flared angrily at the thought, 
He stamped his foreleg. He knew what he had to do. He put the sack of books in a place of safety. Then he lowered his head and charged down the road to attack the general hospital. He broke down the front doors with his horn and pounded into the corridors. People fled from him in terror. Men and women grabbed hypo guns and tried to fire at him, but he flicked them with the power of his horn and they fell down. He rampaged on in search of the emergency division. The general hospital was designed just like the medical building and the national library. He was able to find his way without trouble. Soon he was among the many rooms of the emergency division. He kicked down doors, checked rooms, checked room after room. They were full of patients. The emergency division was a busy place. He had not expected to find so many people were ill and dangerous, but none of them were what he was looking for. They were not being transformed. They were dying from physical or mental sickness. If any people like him had been brought here, they had already been destroyed. Red rage filled his heart. He charged on through the halls. Then suddenly he came to a great room where the Medicomputers lived. Rank on rank they stood before him. Their displays glared evilly at him, and their voices shouted. He heard several of them shout together, Absolute emergency! Atmospheric control! Activate all nerve gas! Saturation gassing all floors! They were trying to kill him. They are going to kill everybody in the hospital. The medicomputers were made of magnesite and plasmium. Their circuits were fireproof, but they were not proof against the power of the horn. When he attacked them, they began to burn in white fire as incandescent as the sun. He could hear gas hissing in the air. He took a deep breath and ran. The gas was hissing in all the corridors of the hospital. Patients began to die. Men and women in white coats began to die. Norman began to think that he would not be able to get out of the hospital before he had to breathe. A moment later, the fire in the medicomputers ignited the gas. The gas burned... The oxygen tanks began to explode. Dispensaries went up in flames. The fire extinguishers could not stop the intense heat of burning magnesite and plasmium. When the cylinders of nerve gas burst, they had enough force to shatter the floors and walls. Norman flashed through the doors and galloped into the road, leaving the general hospital raging behind him like a furnace. He breathed the night air deep into his chest and skittered to a stop on the far side of the road to shake the sparks out of his mane. Then he turned to watch the hospital burn. At first he was alone in the road. The people who lived nearby did not come to watch the blaze. They were afraid of it. They did not try to help the people who escaped the flames. But then he saw a young girl come out from between the houses. She went into the road to look at the fire. Norman pranced over to her. He reared in front of her. She did not run away. She had a lump on her forehead like the base of a horn or the nub of a new antler. There was a smile on her lips as if she was looking at something beautiful. And there was no fear in her eyes at all. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2,